the early service, um, we discovered that the um, latest batch of batteries that we bought for this thing were all bad, all bad, uh, such that they kept bringing me different mics, and they would put the battery in it and would turn it on, and it would drain the battery. The battery was already dead. So if I flake out on this, don't turn around and embarrass Jay because he's doing the best he can with bad batteries. Which brings me to my second point, which is, um, so Joe talked about this Wednesday's Ash Wednesday. We begin the season of Lent. Lent's actually more than 40 days. It's 40 days plus Sundays, right? So, um, and we're Protestants. So for some of you, you might think, what kind of church have I gone into? Why in the world would Protestants do something like that? Well, that's a good question. Maybe you didn't ask that question. You should have asked that question. And the reason why you should ask that question is because uh, it'll help you understand uh, what Lent's about. Lent ultimately is not about giving up chocolate or ham or cheese or beers or whatever your particular thing is. It's ultimately about repenting, trusting Christ, and taking an extended period of time to do that, to look forward uh, to uh, Jesus' Passion Week. And so as a result of that, this, I guess this is going to work. I just thought I'd just keep it out of my pocket for a while. Uh, and I also forgot that I had it in my hand. But um, uh, I usually don't tell people to give something up for Lent. Because I don't want you to be confused. Uh, and I don't like giving anything up. And I feel like if I tell you to give something up then I better be willing to do it. Notice I didn't say that I should give it up, but I should at least be willing to give it up. But I want you to think about something with me. Uh, The next 40 days plus Sundays beginning Wednesday. And that's this. Ask God if your use of social media is helping you. Just ask him. And the second thing I want you to do, uh, if you think that maybe, just maybe, he would say, you know what, maybe you're using it too much, let me give you an exercise to try. Don't tell anybody, but drop all your accounts. And on Easter Sunday, see how many people missed you. Now, probably you don't want to do that because down deep inside you're thinking, what happens if nobody misses me? Well, that could be good because they're getting enough of you face to face, which is what we ought to be shooting for in the first place. Just a thought. Uh, we started uh, in Second Corinthians um, a couple of weeks ago, and we're up to Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Um, the text is uh, up uh, behind me on the bulletins and uh, or on the screens and printed in the bulletin. So 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed... 
We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So uh, I want you, I'm going to ask you to do something today that's really big, and it's so big you probably can't do it. And that is to think about the purpose of your life. Now, some of you are cynical, and the cynical among us think, well, the purpose of my life is to get by, just to get by. I got here this morning, I fulfilled my purpose, right? Or uh, just to get through life as painlessly and without as uh, much difficult as possible, or just, just to make it, right? Or, or to get to retirement, you know? Or, or maybe, maybe you're really a, uh, uh, into our culture and you're thinking that, oh, th- my purpose in life is to find my purpose, <laughs> to find my passion. And once I find my passion, everything's going to be awesome. They made a movie about that. The Lego movie, right? Everything's awesome, right? So, so we think that that's, we think that that's what it's, what it's about. Well, listen, <clears throat> you're here today by the providence of God. Uh, this is a Presbyterian church. Like I said, it's a Protestant church. And we have the answer to that question. You've been wondering what your purpose is? Let me tell you. Your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? That's your purpose. That's every human being's purpose. Now, we have theological cousins called the Christian Reformed Church. They, too, have a catechism. And their first question begins this way. What's your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some people see those two things and think, well, they're, they're different from each other. No, they're not. Because both of them present to us the reality that a life worth living is a life not centered on self, but upon the God who made us, the God who redeemed us. And that actually real freedom, real joy is found in that. Now, I I, I tell you this this morning because to, to help you understand the really hard thing that's in this text. Because if you understand your purpose in life as ultimately about you, your success, your existence, uh, your joy, your, your, all of those things, and that that's what we are about to pursue, then, then this text is going to be, your, well, frankly, you should dismiss it. Because it's too hard and there's too much life in it for you to lay hold of. But where real life is found, where real life is for us, is understanding this purpose and seeing how it manifests itself in the darkest, hardest, frankly, most miserable place. In my life. So let's, let's, let's look into the text today and, and unpack a little bit about that. So Paul begins here uh, by saying, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Remember, this is going to be uh, read in church 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now you hear that, uh, uh, those words Asia, and you think, I didn't know Paul went to India. I didn't know that Paul went to China or Vietnam. Asia in the New Testament is Turkey, modern day Turkey. That's where, uh, uh, that's, that's what he's describing. And believe it or not, this morning I met somebody between services who came to me and said, this was such a good passage for me today because I've lived the last four years in Turkey as a religious refugee. Because the country that I came from, I changed my religion, and they were going to kill me because they know better. So obviously they could relate to exactly what uh, uh, what Paul is getting at here. And so what he says is, is that something terrible happened to him in Turkey. Now, if Paul had had a Facebook page or a... Or a uh, 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 Snapchat or a, um, uh, Instagram, he would have told us what it was. You know, I did this or I did that or my car broke down or, or something, right? They, he would have described for us in great detail whatever the affliction was. But he doesn't do that. All he says is, I want you to know that during my time in Turkey, awful things happened. Terrible things happened, so bad that it felt like I was under the sentence of death, so bad, the pressure was so great, the burden was so intense, I was certain I was going to die. So we don't know. And and people have speculated that it actually was a sentence of death handed down by the courts there in Ephesus where where Paul had, had, had been and where he caused a riot when he planted a church there. We don't know. But the point is, we don't need to know. All we need to know is he had a really difficult time, maybe one of the most difficult times ever in his life. And he, as he experienced that, he wants us, he wants the church in Corinth to hear and to know that that happened to him and why it happened to him. So in any case, whatever it was that happened to him, he feels so burdened and so pressured that he would die. And part of the way you need to read this text is, you notice how he says, God delivered us, he kind of is delivering us, and he will deliver us again. Whatever the situation is that he's experiencing, there's a sense in which it's ongoing, that the difficulty that he has, the, the challenges that he has, has not gone away yet. So he's, he's still struggling. So, next slide. Um, so what he does here in this text is he points to us two things that help us and help him get at uh, what his purpose is. So there are two things in this terrible trial that gives him purpose. And the first one is this, said very explicitly uh, in the text, is that God has brought this to him to bless him by removing his self-reliance and causing him to trust all the more, because he has no choice, in the one who raises the dead. Look at what he says. This is very interesting, right? He says, so we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was, all of that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's really hard. Really hard. Um, because what, what Paul's saying here is, God put me in a situation that felt like I was dying so that I would trust no one else, only the one who raises the dead. We're very glib about these things, aren't we? 
uh, in the way in which we, we talk about uh, difficulty and pain and suffering. Um, we sang earlier in the service uh, the hymn, By Thy Mercy. This speaks, too, to us of deliverance. Um, Jesus, Lord of life and glory, bend from heaven your gracious ear while our waiting souls adore you, friend of helpless sinners here. So, yeah, I'm a, you know, I can kind of relate to that. I, there are times in my life where I'm helpless, not many, but a few. And for those few times I'm helpless, God, you should help me. From the depth of nature's blindness, sometimes I don't see as clearly as I should. One out of a hundred. Uh, but, but for the, you know, the 99 times I get it right, but once in a while I get it wrong. You know, I need some help with that. So yeah, I could, I could sing this in good conscience. From the hardening power of sin, um, you'd have to ask somebody else whether I'm hardened by sin or not. You could ask Marty later. She could tell you. I don't know. Maybe. Probably. From all malice and unkindness, if you'd been with me in the car yesterday when I was uh, in traffic in D.C., uh, you would have known Steve has some malice and unkindness, to put it mildly. Or the pride that lurks within when I was lost, you would have known. The pride was not lurking within. It was actually in full display. (laughs) So you hear that and you're like, okay, I get that. But I'm in all my life in ministry, in all my life in the church forever, I've been to a million prayer meetings, a million worship services. I've never heard anybody, except when we sing this song, that God would deliver us when the world is smiling. In the time of wealth and ease. Earthly joys are hearts beguiling in the day of health and peace. I, you know... Most of my time, I'm praying like, Jesus, can you just give me a little health and peace, right? The problem is there's nothing wrong with health and peace. There's nothing wrong uh, with those things. There is something wrong with us when they beguile us into a false trust, right? And so what Paul says to us is in the mercy of God, in the goodness of God, in the grace of God, and in the power of God, he put him in a situation where he was pressed upon and burdened so that in the midst of that, he would know the power of God. He would know the reality of God. He would know and not trust anything else, but simply rely upon the power of God on the deliverance of God, because this God raises the dead. Now, here's the thing that you have to see about this is, I mean, and, and admittedly, let me just say this, this is challenging. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty profound thing for us to, to see and to think and to, to address that, right? But, but, but there's a couple of things to, that, that you have to see too about this text that, that presses this even more, right? Um, and to kind of correct our glib theology. You've heard it said that God won't ever give you anything too hard. You've heard it said that God won't give you anything you can handle. Now, that that language is not in this text. And so maybe some of you, because that's such a dear thing to you, you might quibble with this. But Paul says that this, he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength. That's a lot. That's a heavy burden. 
beyond your strength, beyond your ability to cope, beyond your ability to deal with, right? It is, it is so profound, so difficult, so hard that he despaired of life itself and he even despaired of his own strength in being able to deal with this. Why? So that he would not trust anything other than this God who raises the dead. Next, next slide. Uh, there's no other place to turn when you're in this kind of situation. Now, that's, that's what we tend to do, right? We, we tend to look at and try to find almost anything else uh, that, we can, uh, that, that we can turn to. Now, now, let me just say something about this. I was in a conference one time, uh, the last time I went to this conference, back when I was a, a new church planner. It was a training conference for new church planners. And there was a guy speaking at the thing who was a successful church planner. And he said... Uh, that <clears throat> all this business about trusting in God's strength didn't mean anything to him because all he knew to do was to trust in his own strength because, you know, what did that even mean? Because trusting in God's strength felt like trusting in something you couldn't see or feel or experience, but at least he could feel and know his own strength, which just sounds, is, is actually a good, honest thing, except he just... Uh, my, my expectation is uh, that he was never placed in a situation where he had no other choice, right? Um, but you see, this is the great thing that the suffering and this difficulty and this pain brings to us and why it is such a blessing. Paul speaks of the fundamental and determinative question concerning the human being. In fact, your life. This is the, this is the central question of life. According to the scriptures, namely, whether you will live in trust in the divine word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or in unbelief and idolatry. And that's the thing. I mean, if I were to ask you today, are you living today in unbelief and idolatry? All of you would say, absolutely not. But the only way you know, ultimately, whether you're living in idolatry, whether you're trusting anything else, whether you're relying upon anything else is when you can't rely on it anymore. When there's only one thing, right? So what Paul, what happened here to him is that God did this to him, put him through this situation so that he would know the power of God, so that he would know the reality that, that, that there was no other hope, no other trust, and that he must throw himself upon, in trust, upon the power of this one who raises the dead. Now, now you may hear this and you may think, well, what, you know, that, that stinks. I don't want to die. I don't want the people I love to die. Some of you are dying. Right? Well, the, the, the Old Testament is full of these kind of laments. Right? Psalm 6, 5 says, the Bible uh, it says, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. We're saying like, God, what, what good is it of me if I, if I die? You need, you need to deliver me. In Sheol, the place of the death, who will give you praise? Next slide, please, Megan. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Psalm 88, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness of your, 
or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You see, that's the, 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 there's nothing wrong with asking that question. We should ask that question. We should lament the, the fact that we live in a world where, where pressure comes upon us, where life ebbs away and, and where it is, that's just the reality of the, of the situation that we should, should, we, we see and that we experience. But what the New Testament says to us and what Paul says to us in this text is, listen, when these things come your way, when this happens, we have the declaration, we have the reality of the empty tomb, we have the fact that this God raises the dead. And he does it in all sorts of ways. Now, now, one of the things that you have to see about this and what Paul is alluding to in this text is that there are lots of little ways, smaller ways, daily ways, weekly ways, monthly ways that God delivers us. And that those things are, 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 are for us as pointers to the big deliverance that we have, uh, in the resurrection of Christ. Look, look at this, look at this. Romans 4 illustrates this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So do you see all this about trusting, grace, all that? Be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. God said, I've made you the father of many nations when he was childless. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is something you ought to all do occasionally is consider your own body, you know, uh, in the sense, especially if you reach a hundred. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Uh, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, who, I might add, was about 90 years old. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who has delivered up for our trespass, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see what's going on here? This is the way you have to think about this. We, we've grown too comfortable and too immune to the power of the resurrection. You cannot underestimate the profound impact it had on that generation of people who knew that Jesus was dead and then who saw him alive. That changed everything for them. That that reoriented everything for them. That changed everything, literally everything for them. So that as, as Paul looks at his life and as he experiences terrible pain and suffering, as he ex- despairs of life itself, he knows and he hopes in this one who will deliver him. 
And his hope and his prayer is that this God would deliver him uh, from from this earthly temporary difficulty because he knew that this God raised the dead, that he knew that Jesus was really dead and now he was alive. And that was his hope. And that was the thing that he ultimately put his trust in. So one of the things that you have to see about that is, is that that is the that's the that's these little deliverances that you experience when you get a little better, when you've been sick or something like that happens your way. These are pointers to us of the ultimate truth that Jesus Christ, by virtue of his life, death and resurrection, has delivered you from the ultimate penalty, the ultimate uh, pressure, the ultimate burden of death. And that's what we hope and trust in. But there's one other thing that he gives us about uh, this. And we, we don't have as much time to spend on this, but he calls us to pray. Now, what's interesting about this is he tells the Corinthians that he wants them to pray for his deliverance, that he wants them to participate with God in a mysterious way for his deliverance. That's what happens at, 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 when they pray. But the point of that is not so much that he would be delivered. The point of that, as he says here, is so that there'll be a lot of thanksgiving to God, right? So that the point of this will be that people will see and know that God is good and that they will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Again, a very God-centered view of the way in which this works. Deliver me, deliver me, but don't deliver me because I want to be delivered, but deliver me so that other people will see it, they'll pray for it, and they'll be grateful and give thanksgiving for the fact that that's happened. That's what, that's the point of this is, is that we pray for one another, certainly for deliverance, but we pray for deliverance so that we have a testimony to the goodness and the grace of God so that there is thanksgiving and joy because of what God has done for us. So we actually participate in the work that he's doing by praying for this and then being grateful. Now, let's stop right here and talk a little more directly about this. Because here's the problem. The problem is, you read this, and I read it this way, right? He says, uh, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Here's the thing, and I know this is uh, uh, this, this is where we spend most of our time. Frankly, the fact that God raises the dead doesn't mean anything. What we want is to be delivered from this thing right here, right now. Let's be clear about that, right? Um, Yesterday was my dad's 87th birthday. We gathered together to celebrate his birthday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, We should have given him a a medal because as far as we can tell, he's lived longer than any Shelby male, like in recent memory. He made it 87. He was delighted. His big sister sent him a birthday card. She's 91. 
They're the two left out of the 11 kids. Um, and so <clears throat> to give you an idea of how my dad's doing, uh, we went to this super duper fancy restaurant and we were a little late getting there. And he told my brother while he was waiting on us, he was hungry, that let's go to a restaurant that actually wants to give us something to eat. <laughs> because it was a little too frou-frou for him. So, um, so we were talking, and uh, this is my dad's first birthday after my mom's death, and uh, my dad's still grieving uh, the loss of his wife of 66 years. And we were talking about what it was like when my mom was in hospice the last two weeks she was alive. And one of the things that was really difficult for my mom when she was in hospice, there were a lot of things that were difficult for her, but the one that was probably most difficult was, even though we we brought in blankets and pictures and a lot of stuff from home to surround her with familiar things, she wanted to go home. She wanted to go home. And... uh we would have loved to have taken her home, but we could not have taken care of her at home. She, she needed to be where she was. Um, and she would even say things to me. To, one day, she took my brother and I aside, and she said, what's happened to your father and I that we are so poor that we've lost our house and we're having to live in a place like this? This is like living in a commune. And I'm like, Mom, a commune? She's like, yeah. People are coming and going in here all the time. What's up with that? Um, I'm like, Mom, this is a good place for you. And so she would say things to my dad like, you know, if you take me home, I'll cook for you. <laughs> I'll make you some biscuits, right? Uh, and then sometimes she would just say, Milton, get me out of here. I've had enough. So finally, my dad took her by the hand one day and said, um, listen, either you're going to get better and you're going to go home or you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven. Now, I would submit to you that God will deliver us, is delivering us, and will deliver us again. We live between those two poles. Do you see that? Either you'll get better and you'll go home, or you'll die and be with Jesus forever. Both of those are deliverance. Both of those are our hope and our trust. And both of those are the only things that are certain. There isn't anything or anyone else. So listen, some of you are bitter this morning at God because you feel like you're not being delivered and that if all you've got from him is the promise of resurrection, You'll take something else. Some of us this morning, and, I, and please, I want you to understand something from me this morning. I, I um, as I say these things to you, as I proclaim this uh, 
this to you, I want you to understand that I am not minimizing in any way the sentence of death that's been passed over many of you. But I hold out to you the hope, the promise, and the reality of this Jesus who has delivered you, is delivering you, and will deliver you again. And as you live between these two poles, that's the best place to live in seeing and understanding that that is what Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to give us. Secondly, we have the opportunity to participate with one another in this as we pray with and for one another for the deliverance of our friends and family and the people that we love in the hope and looking forward to the reality, the joy of thanksgiving to the God who delivers. You know what it feels like when you look back or you see something and you think, God delivered me from that. Just imagine the joy of the deliverance you will see and experience when you fully understand what you have been delivered from in Jesus Christ. We need to quiet ourselves. We need to ask this God to remove our cynicism, our bitterness, and our self-righteousness. And as we do that, to ask him to help us rely on him because he raises the dead. And look to him to be our deliverer. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you today confessing our coldness, uh, our dissatisfaction with your ways, and often our dissatisfaction with your deliverance. We pray today um, that as uh, those of us who are under pressure, even feeling the, the uh, sentence of death, that we have come past uh, the limit and the end of our strength, uh, that you would um, give us hope by the truth that you are a deliverer and that you will ultimately deliver us uh, from the sting and the power of death. So help us uh, today with that. Lord, you know, uh, because you walk this earth, uh, the difficulty the pain and uh, the challenges that we experience. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would press the gospel upon us, that we would see and trust and hope uh, in this one who raises the dead and who was raised from the dead. Uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.